Welcome to The Healthy Beast. Today I'm joined by Hannah Studley, author and life coach and trauma counsellor. Have I got that right? And you're, jo- um, you're joining me today from Israel. So welcome to The Healthy Beast from all the way over there. Thank you. It's great to be here. And your name, just to, so people know from the start, it's Hannah Studley, but it's spelt with a C-H. So your website is C-H-A-N-A, Hannah Studley, S-T-U-D-L-E-Y.com. That right? That's right. Right. Good pronunciation. Thank you very <laughs> Thank much. You. Lucky I checked beforehand. <laughs> and one thing, one thing that stood out from your website, it says that you're a World Health Organization psychological first responder, a psychological first responder. I haven't heard of one of those before. What does that involve? Well, here in Israel, we have an organization called Hadzala, which translated means rescue. And it's a completely voluntary organization that works with the National Ambulance Service and, and the paramedics and the fire department. But it's so much better because there could be a off-duty nurse, social worker, somebody on the end of your road that knows how to do CPR and can be there in a minute whereas an ambulance could take up to, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 minutes. So we have this amazing system here. And about four or five years ago, one of the women in that unit, she realized that a lot of people who call the emergency number are probably experiencing some kind of trauma. And so she set up a new unit called the Psychotrauma and Crisis Unit. And I was in the second group to be trained. And so when, the, when someone calls the emergency number here, the call center will assess if that person's also experiencing some kind of trauma, um, which is quite likely if you're you know, calling you know, emergency services. And so it could be someone who's witnessed the car accident. It could have been someone who was in the car accident. It could be a um, a first responder themselves. And so we're trained to go to the the site, to the situation. And one of the first statistics I I remember was that if someone is stabilized in the moment, they are 80% less chance of having PTSD afterwards. So in that training of that course locally, we were also um, advised to do it um, through the World Health Organization, who has a a similar program. Their their program is more about um, earthquakes and, you know, like national tragedies. Um, But we're we're trained. I mean, the first call I went on was a baby CPR. Can you imagine someone's, you know, like, God forbid your baby is in in that kind of danger and, and the paramedics are doing CPR on it. It's like traumatic for the parents to watch or the grandparents, the neighbors, you know, people witness all kinds of things. So we're taught to stabilize people in, in, in the situation. And that training gave me a lot of um, biological and medical knowledge to do with the stress response system. So it was it was highly valuable as well as being incredible um, experience and service. Yeah. So I think everyone is aware of, even if they haven't done it, as you say, the, the, the first responses you need, first aid, CPR and so forth. Mm-hmm. What, what do you need to do if you go into a situation and someone's traumatized? How do you have to take control of the situation? Well, if, if it's in the moment, um, one of the simplest things you can do is you want to get the person back to the moment. Because when, um, you know, I can talk more about this about my story, but when I went through a lot of trauma in my 20s, um, it was the early, early 1980s and I didn't get any help. I was just like, basically, you have a cup of tea and go home, suck it up and walk it off, love, you know? And so I got stuck in this loop of, of, traumatic thinking, like thinking about the event over and over again. So if you're with someone who's actually in a situation of trauma, who is maybe catatonic, you know, you can tell by their, their kind of disassociating, their eyes are rolling back. What you can do is just maybe touch their wrists. You don't want to hurt them, but just like, just squeeze it slightly. And, and it might even be annoying to them, but that, that's good because it will bring them back to the moment. You want to get them centered. 
You want to get them back thinking right now because they're either um, their imagination's going off in something of like they're catastrophizing what could or could be happening or what's going to happen. You want to bring them back to the moment. And the more you can do that and help them to see that they're safe now or they're going to be safe and that you're there taking care of them and reassure them, then that's going to go a long way to helping them recover much quicker. So that grabbing the wrist is is just enough pressure that they can feel something real is happening now. Is that yes, what exactly. Idea? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it could be like if you can't, I've done it where I've hold, held onto someone's wrists or hands, you know, whatever is appropriate in the moment, but um, just something to get their attention back to now. No. Okay, so you engage yeah. with them and get them to see that, mm-hmm. yeah. know, that they're okay yeah. and you, you can move forward from there. Sure, exactly. So yeah. you, you mentioned your own experience. If you don't mind talking about this, this was so you're in Israel now, but this was back in the UK. You grew up in the UK. Yeah. And you were just a kid when this happened or you were in your 20s, you said? Um, I, was, I was in my 20s. I was at Manchester University. And um, I was actually mugged three times, which it's bad enough when you get mugged one time, but it actually happened three times. The first one, I was in college and I was um, at a concert. Um, it was in a nightclub. It was very dark. There was a lot of people crammed in. Everybody's looking at the stage. And this young man wanted to dance with me. And I kind of, I, I never knew who he was. I pushed him away. And the last thing I remember is his hand on the back of my head and he smashed my head into a concrete pillar on the side of the dance floor, fractured my skull right here. I know you can't see it, but I'm, I, I know there's, like, that's right there where the, where the bone knitted back together again. Um, I lost my eyesight for a day. I, I was rushed off to the hospital, um, x-rays. I actually had to be tied down to the table because, because I couldn't see. I was so terrified. I didn't know what was happening and my head was a different shape. They actually had to tie me to the x-ray table, which is traumatic in itself because, you, know? um, you know, obviously the nurses and everyone has to leave the room. So, um, so I recovered from that pretty well. It was just written off as one of those things that happen when you're a drunken student uh, in Manchester in the early 80s. And so um, I, I carried on about three years later, six o'clock in the evening in February. So in Manchester, it was already um, getting dark. And I was walking um, from my, I just moved house. So I was mo- mo- uh, walking back to where I'd been living. And three men came out of the dark, slammed me to the ground and beat the living daylights out of me. I was left for, I'm not left for dead, but it was pretty bad. I mean, they, they ran off. And I, I remember like picking myself out of the dirt. And I could see two people who'd been walking by on the other side, the, the kind of bit of ground where they'd left me. And I, now I don't blame them at all. I never have, but um, it kind of compounded that feeling of being isolated and vulnerable because they just walked by and I'd been screaming for my life. I went to the police station a couple of days later um, and the police kind of basically told me that they had real things to deal with, like murders and, and robberies and, and my little attack should just, you know, I should just go home. And so after that, you know, this is about 1984 when PTSD had only just been started to be written about it's uh, in the DSM, which is the book that um, psych- psychologists and psychiatrists use for diagnosis. Um, and so nobody in Manchester knew about it back then. So I don't know if um, that, that had anything to do with it, but they, they really didn't give me any kind of help or treatment. I was just sent home. I went home and basically got stuck in my world of thinking and reliving the event over and over again. I, kept, I couldn't understand why me, why did it happen to me? What did I do wrong? And so um, this went on for a couple of years. I got very sick and very ill. I couldn't really work. I was on unemployment. 
and I wasn't eating and I wasn't sleeping. And then it came came to um, actually when it came to the anniversary of it happening about a year later, I um I decided to move to London because clearly Manchester was the problem. And um, I moved down to London. I'd started working in the theatre and I was in London probably about a year and I was trying to get my act together and tr- trying to ignore my thinking and ignore this like insanity that was going on in my head. And I got attacked again. I was um, riding a bicycle home from the theater. It's about 10 o'clock at night and a, a young kid threw his bicycle at me. So I got this impact of a, a, a bike in my head and shoulders. So it was, I was riding one way and the impact came the other way. So it was like, bam, like that. <laughs> you know, it was like being shot out of a cannon at a brick wall because the Im- like when he swung the bike at me, I took the impact in my neck and shoulders. Now, I remember lying in the gutter on Stockwell Road with the cars whizzing past my head, how I didn't get run over, I don't know, thank God. And I couldn't understand why me, why did all these terrible things keep happening to me? And that kind of um, took me back into that darkness again really quickly to the point where I was terrified to leave the house because I knew the world was a dangerous place. I knew that if I went out my door, a bus was going to run me over or I was going to get pushed in front of a train in the tube station. And you couldn't have told me otherwise because I had proof. I had I had x-rays and police reports to prove it. So I got into a really bad way again very quickly. And I was like that for probably about six months. Again, not sleeping, not eating. Um, I, I lost so track of time at one point. I remember looking at my clock and I didn't know if it was six in the morning or six in the evening. And... Eventually, um, I asked for help. I got in, um, in touch with a women's uh, crisis center in North London, and they were amazing. And they they kind of like scooped me up and helped me to um, to get well. Since then, never had any medical professional help at all. So it's just all been self help and uh, transformational kind of reading of self help books and things like that is what got me out of it really. Well, that's I mean, it's amazing. Those three awful things, any one of which would have been terrible for a person, but but three of them. You said you were feeling, why me? Did, did it feel as though, you know, the world was conspiring against you? Did you have all these kind of feelings? Yeah, I, it felt like some kind of Murphy's Law. I mean, I wasn't so arrogant to think the whole world was against me, but I, I kind of knew that if something was going to go wrong, then it would be me who got it, you know? <laughs> like, if someone's going to fall in front of a train, then it would be me. You know, if if a bus is going to run out of control, then it would be me that it would get it. You know, I I, I thought there was some kind of, you know, sod's law going on that um, I it was written in my stars that I, I wasn't going to make it. I, I was quite, quite convinced I was going to be dead by the time I was 30. At this Women's Crisis Centre, it was this, the, the quote I read from you was that you said it was like a brain, my brain just blew a fuse and everything went quiet. Was that the time you were talking about <clears throat> when you went to this Women's Centre and they finally... Uh, and what did they and what did they do that that unlocked this this door to the, the rest of your life and getting getting past these awful traumas it was really like you know i don't know if you've ever experienced this the women listening probably have where you have a hairdryer especially in a hotel and when it gets too hot it just cuts out it's like a safety mechanism and i think that's what my my brain kind of did my mind in that my thinking was going so fast and so, in such turmoil and I was stuck in this um, this loop of, of just living and thinking in the same thoughts over and over again, that it just kind of blew a fuse. I don't know how else to describe it. And it just went quiet, which actually wasn't so comforting. It was quite scary at first. And I had to like, you know, get used to it. And it took me a long time to understand why I hadn't gone for it before. 
And I think it was because I had trained as a counselor back in college and I had some kind of idea in my head that I was the, I should hope I should be the person that people come to. So then I finally kind of saw how, what a mess my life was becoming and and how I I knew I wasn't going to make it. So when I reached out to these women, they, um, I think one of the first things I heard that really registered with me was one of them asked me if I was ready to let go of my story. And at first I was really offended because what I heard her say was it didn't happen or it didn't hurt or you should get over it. And in my head, I was screaming at her, but it did happen and it does hurt and I can't get over it. And it took me a while to like actually hear what she was saying, which was, she was, she was saying that you're safe now that that story that you've been living in for so long isn't true. In fact, it's quite unreliable. It's not helping you. Are you ready to let go of it? And I kind of like started waking up and hearing what she was saying to the point where I I saw that my identity had become the girl who's been mugged three times. Like I I was quite um, attached to the story to the point where if I did get out of the house and I did get to some uh, theater jobs and I could get into a conversation, I could manage to get that conversation around to the terrible things that happened to me. I got very manipulative with it because I saw that as um, some kind of like value in that if you didn't know what had happened to me, you'd think I was boring or, or you would reject me somehow. Or I had to have this big story you know, to get your attention or to get you to feel sorry for me. And it had become my identity. And so she helped me to see that if um, I let go of that, that actually I was going to be okay, that there was, um, there was something else there that didn't have to have all the drama in it. And that's kind of what I've gone on and, and seem to be true and help other people with. And is this something that you've, you've seen as common, that, that people hold on to a, something bad? Obviously, not, no one's happy, happy that it happened, but they hold on to it bad, as you say, like some sort of identity, something interesting that has happened in their life, something that you can always talk about, you can always show people, you can always tell people about it. Is this a common occurrence? Yeah. It, I, and like you said, it's not always necessary. It's not good. But because it becomes such a dominating thought, it, it kind of like colors everything you see. Like, for example, the night I was mugged by the three guys, I had um, huge big silver earrings on. And for some reason, I didn't have them on that night. Thank God, because they would have ripped them out of my ears. So I couldn't bear the idea of putting earrings in for a very long time. And then people would say to me, oh, you never wear earrings. I go, oh, well, that's because I was mugged. <laughs> see, I could get it into any conversation. Mm. Right? And, um, and it was like, like I said, like currency. Um, I also know about motorbikes and football because I have lots of brothers. And so I could get any guy to feel, you know, interested and feel sorry for me. I could get girls to like think I was a hero. You know, it was, it was, I'd see now how manipulative I was, but it was totally based in fear. I didn't know how else to communicate with people because I was living through, um, through the, the story in my head that I'd created. And so now when I, when I meet people who are also in that place, I, very gently, of course, um, I, I don't know that I would ask them straight away if they're willing to let go of their story because it's, um, it was, like I said, it was quite threatening. So what I do now is I, I tend not to ask them so much about the trauma, be, partly because I don't want to um, encourage that, you know, obsessive thinking and talking about it all the time. But what I found now is that especially people who've experienced um, trauma, that the healing isn't in the past. 
the healing is happening right now and to help someone see that right now you like we all live in a thought created world and so if i'm always feeling my thinking and my thinking is negative and 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 judgmental and 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 one of the other symptoms of trauma is hypervigilance. So I found that um, for many years, I was very vigilant about my environment. Like if I heard a noise or, or, or like footsteps behind me for a long time was one of the things that would set me off. But I started seeing that it was, it was never actually the outside. It wasn't even the, pe- the men that hurt me. It was my thoughts about them that I was suffering from. And so when I work with trauma people now, it's more, uh, and I hesitated there, I didn't use victims because I don't like that word either. Um, I don't see myself as a survivor either because that's another label that I don't need. That's not me. (laughs) It's not even, you know, it's thank God 30 years ago now and it's not part of my identity at all. What I help people do is see that they're they're living in a thought-created world and that that thought-created world right now is okay. It's actually... um, it's actually to our benefit to realize that because once I get to see the fact that I'm the one doing the thinking, then that the quality of my world is totally up to me, not them, not, not the future. It's I'm the one doing the thinking. So I've learned to watch my thinking, become an observer of it. And so especially someone who's been through trauma and where those thoughts can be very invasive and um, they keep coming up, then to be able to set, step back and watch them go by like clouds or, or buses, like traffic, you know, like there's, there's cars and buses and taxis. And I've now become an observer of them because there's always going to be another bus. There's always going to be another thought. And now I know that all thoughts are neutral until I have a judgment on them. So if one of those memories comes up or a fear about the future, and I see that it's only when I judge it or have something on it, I'm actually going to create myself an experience I can, I, I'm now in charge of that. So, so it's like it's such a freedom to, to know that I'm not a victim of my past or, or the future. It's right now, right here, I'm safe and okay. I like this idea of a, a thought-created world, as you put it. Do people have problems sometimes with this concept? Because they say to you, well, it's not a thought-created world, it's a real world, because look, these real things happen to me. I have to go out and do physical things. And possibly even, in a case like yours, there's, there's the psychological trauma. But if someone is also dealing with the physical after-effects of a, an attack, that's a, that's a very real thing in the present for them. So how do, you, how do you kind of square those two things? They say, yeah, well, yes, I can say it's a thought-created world, but also I'm in pain from this attack. I'm in pain from this accident. It's still with me, whatever I think about. Sure, that, that is a great question because invariably when I talk about these ideas with people, they will say, yeah, but. <laughs> Everybody has a yeah, but. Like, so so you, you're, you're right on. Um, you know, people will say to me, okay, I get it's my thoughts about my idiot boss, but, you know, I'm going to lose my job and I need to pay the rent and I've got to feed my kids. That's real, right? So you can't say that's thought or, you know, like I've got this, you know, my, my leg is broken from this accident or I've got, you know, like, uh, you know, migraines or all kinds of physical things can happen. And what I found is there isn't anything that isn't made of thought. And just want to explain that for a moment. Um, thought and thinking are kind of two different things, obviously related, but thought is really a creative power. It's an energy. It's a spiritual energy. I have no idea what I'm saying right now, but it's some kind of spiritual energy that flows through our minds. Its nature is to flow, movement. It wants to move. 
And it's a raw material like Play-Doh is a raw material. So if you've got little kids and you give three of them Play-Doh, this one's going to like make a little person. This one's going to make a flower. This one will make a smush and we'll say, that's cute, right? And they're all using the same raw material to make different things. It's a reliable. And whether you buy that Play-Doh in London or in Singapore, it's going to have that same smell. It's going to have the same properties. You put it back in the tub, get it out, you know, in a week's time, it still has that same Play-Doh smell. You know, it's, it's a reliable um, thing. So is thought. Thought is a creative energy and it's neutral until I have a judgment or do something with it. So with that creative energy, I could be anxious. I could also be creative. I could be planning my vacation or I can be worrying about, um, you know, a review from my boss or I can be experiencing something from my five senses, which they say there are more than five senses if you get into quantum physics, but, um, you know, just, just to keep Steady. it simple for now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so to keep it simple for now, um, if you take something like pain, um, pain would, let's say in terms of five senses, that would be coming from touch. And there's plenty of um, uh, scientific research. And, and even if you look at your own experience, sometimes you can have a paper cut that kills, right? It like just doesn't stop stinging. And then you could have a fractured bone. Like my neck was broken from that, that third um, uh, incident. And I didn't know it for two years. I was walking around with broken, broken vertebrae and I didn't know it for two years until I was x-rayed because I got um, paralyzed um, so all of a sudden because my muscles in my neck just squeezed and, and tightened up and I couldn't move my head. That was two years later. So pain is not a reliable um, source of information. So the work I do now, I work with a, um, mostly with people with chronic pain. And so just to, um, just to explain... Acute pain is things like a burn, a fracture, a surgery, where you're having pain in the moment. And then chronic pain is pain that is happening, that has lasted for more than three months. Because in three months, all injuries, fractures, burns, surgeries will heal in, in normal circumstances. So I had chronic pain for years after my, my injuries I had uh, back spasms that landed me in the hospital several times. I had, um, I've had psoriasis and an eczema and IBS and uh, chronic allergies, um, all kinds of physical things. But now with the information I have, I know that the, those um, injuries healed 20, 25 years ago, and yet I was still having pain. So the pain wasn't actually coming from the, the injury. It was coming from stress. And the way I understand that now is that the st stress, which is a thought-created world, dysregulates the nervous system, puts me into the fight-or-flight response. And when you're in fight-or-flight, your body automatically pushes cortisol, adrenaline, glucose into your body. So you've got energy to run from a, from a car accident or a burning house. But if, if you're sitting in stress and you're not running anywhere, those chemicals are just being pushed into your body and they start to dysregulate your system. And that can be um, not enough oxygen going to muscles. It can be not enough enzymes going into the gut. It can be fertility problems. It can be blood not flowing properly in the brain. So you get migraines. It can be all kinds of physiological problems, but they're actually coming from cr uh, chronic stress. So I'll give you an example. It's a long answer to your question. It's okay. <laughs> I, I, want, I, wanted to do, I, I wanted at that point just to pick up on one of the things you said, because I like this... Yeah. I like this um, expression i think you said pain is not a reliable source of information so anybody can be feeling a pain and let's say they've, they've been attacked or had an accident 
they're thinking the pain is due to xyz injury within their body which Mm -hmm. may well be the original cause of it and it may be in the place they were injured but what you're saying is it's so mixed in with other you know with stress responses psychological injuries that you don't know the extent to which that could be coming from a physical source something within your body that's still injured and you don't know to what extent it's just you know, like this feedback loop of pain that you can create for yourself that that's more or less what you were saying with that right yeah, um, there's a piece of research, I think, which actually will make this much clearer. A Dr. Hashmi from Chicago University, she did this research where she got two, she got 100 people split into two groups. One group had acute pain. So that's an injury, a surgery, something, a fracture, a burn that happened immediately, like recently. And then the other group were chronic pain patients who had had back pain for more than 10 years in, in her case of her, her um, participants. And she did brain mapping which is when you MRI someone's brain and you see which parts of the brain get activated. So in her acute pain patients, the front part of the brain, which is called the prefrontal cortex, it's like the part behind your forehead, that part of the brain is what got activated with people with acute pain. Like say you've stubbed your toe, you've got a a sprained ankle. People with chronic pain, it shows up in the back of the brain in what's called the limbic system or the amygdala, which is in charge of the emotional response. Now, that makes total sense to me now because once I learned that all injuries can will heal within six, six to eight weeks, three months tops, it has to be coming from something else. And what she saw is it was coming from the emotions. And then there were a few people in her group who actually went from the acute pain group and then shifted into the chronic pain group because their pain continued even though their injuries had healed. And it shifted. It shifted from here in the front of the brain all the way to the back when she was brain mapping people with MRIs. So her research is actually called shape-shifting pain because she, she realized that that's what's happening. So when I read that research and I put that together with what I've been taught that we are always feeling our thinking, it made total sense that my 25 years of back pain and back spasms and stomach problems and all kinds of things were actually coming, were actually being produced by the, the limbic system, the stress response, not the actual injuries anymore because they've healed. So it's all like your stress responses are telling you you're injured when you're not, to put it quite simply, I suppose. Um, yeah, and so were doctors, <laughs> to be honest. You know, I would go to, when I found out my neck was broken, I, I was in Australia working on a movie, and um, so I managed to get to a chiropractor who had an x-ray machine, and he said to me, your neck is broken, you're going to need to have treatment for the rest of your life. So for 25 years, I went to a chiropractor every month as a, like a routine appointment, and then when I have these spasms when my back would just like lock up and I would be bent sideways with sciatica pain shooting down my, my leg... Um, I would go for more appointments. And so all the doctors and osteopaths and chiropractors I've ever seen, they would say to me, oh, well, that's because you had all these injuries. Look, you've got three herniated discs. That's why your back keeps going out. Or you've got one leg longer than the other. That's why your pelvis is unstable. That's why your back hurts so much. Or like sometimes I'd wake up with my arm numb and they'd say, oh, well, that's because the nerve for your arm comes out of your neck where your neck was broken. Now, I'm not a doctor, so I would hear all these diagnoses and go, oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. But when I read that injuries heal within four to six weeks, it suddenly stopped making any sense because why couldn't a herniated disc heal? They actually do heal within four to six weeks also. 
most most chiropractors won't tell you that, but they do. Um, and so surgery and medications and all that stuff are really like one of my one of my favorite uh, surgeons. He always says you cannot operate on anger. He says I cannot remove your anger. Right? You can have all the surgeries in the world, and I've met people now who've had multiple multiple surgeries, but they're still angry. You know about the world, about relationships, about money, or you name it. People can be angry about anything, and most people with chronic pain are. We're not the kind of furious, you know, like um, you know, smashing plates and, and hitting people kind of angry. We're the frustrated people. We're like just that bubbling frustration of they're all doing it wrong and why don't they just like like I have to do everything, you know, and that bubbling frustration and that that judgment and and it's like it's just put it's putting my nervous system into crisis mode very mildly but all the time. And that just is what kept me in pain all those years. So as I started to understand how the mind works and my mind started to calm down and my thinking started to settle because I wasn't judging and um, reacting to it so much anymore. I think that's why my pain went away because my nervous system got a break. It got to like, you know, slow down and, and calm down and the healing happened finally. And what do you, this, this far down this journey of dealing with your pain. So what happens? It, it's still presumably like anyone, you'll get some pain sometimes you know even people who haven't had these traumatic experiences you're going to get some pain sometimes so what when it bubbles up some pain in some part of your body what's the first place you go to in your mind what's the first thing you think well actually thank god i i don't really get pain anymore even my allergies are, are going i had chronic allergies you know i grew up in the west country and i was i didn't do any sports or learn to swim because my my nose and my eyes were just streaming the whole every summer and i, I my school bag was like a pharmacy um, you know, and even my allergies are going away now, which is amazing. Chronic acne is gone. I had so many, I never thought of myself as a sick person, but I had these constant physiological things going on. So the, the only two times I've had pain since in the last six years, since I, I came across these ideas, one of them was from actually reading a book on back pain. Right? So I, I had this book, research book I wanted to read and I, I was on vacation, I was on holiday and I was sitting in a beautiful coat, um, armchair in a very relaxing place and I'm reading this book that I wanted to read and all of a sudden I started feeling those muscles in my back starting to you know, squeeze up and I just knew that my pelvis was going to be slanted when I got up and, and I started feeling the pain shooting down my leg and I laughed. I started laughing because it was so ridiculous. I hadn't done anything to my body. I hadn't had pain in three years at that point. I hadn't been to the chiropractor in three years. It's funny, since I stopped going to the chiropractor, I don't have pain anymore. Um, nothing against chiropractors. I just like, just that's just my story. So I, I started to laugh because I realized there could be no other explanation other than what I was reading. Now, the book was very graphic. The, the, the man's story was very tragic. You know, um, there was paralysis and, and tornadoes and, and people dying. And it, it probably reminded me a little bit of my story. So it was I was probably remembering stuff that happened to me. And I didn't sleep well that night because my pelvis was slanted and I, was, I had pain in my arms and legs. And, and I, part of me thought, well, maybe I shouldn't finish reading the book. And then I thought, no, it's a really good book. I want to know what, the, what he says in the end. So, and I knew as soon as I put the book down, the pain would go away. And it did. And the only other time I've had pain in the last six years was um, I was speaking at a conference actually in London. 
and there was a thousand people there and I was about to present my research and I was also selling, I have a book, um, a novel that I wrote um, about a year or two ago. So I was selling my novel for the first time to actually to people rather than just on Amazon. Um, I was speaking and I was also one of the organizers. That's a lot of stress with a thousand people coming up to you and asking you a billion questions. And my back started to ache. And because I knew there's nothing actually wrong with my back anymore, in fact, my back feels strong, stronger now than it probably did feel in my 20s, that I just, I didn't, it wasn't even, I, I ignored it. It was just like, it was just unreliable information. It'd be like as if, um, you know, a three-year-old is tugging at you and telling you, you know, they want candy. It was like, you know, just like, you're going to, eventually you might listen to them, but when you know it's just not even real, you don't have to pay any attention. And it, it melted and, and didn't turn into anything. So I guess sorry to interrupt. So I guess you're talking about it's it's listening to the pain in a more mindful way. Would you say to just rather than feel feel pain and think, oh, this is awful, something's wrong with me, to feel pain and and question the source? Maybe you're saying because you're saying it's unreliable. So you're thinking, well, to notice the pain and think, what might that be, rather than thinking, oh, I'm in pain, my back's bad, and then and then starting to think of worse traumas right. and worse eventualities you know i'm gonna be laid up for a week all this kind of thing that i think some people get they feel some pain and suddenly they think oh this is the start of something terrible my life's going wrong i think lots of people have this ability to just go into this what's the word i'm looking for this um catastrophizing that's the word i'm looking for looking at the potential right right yeah yeah, yeah. and i mean i was re- i was an expert at that you know like if i had some kind of like a twinge that that's it i've got a tumor i've got cancer i'm gonna die you know, I could go there in seconds. But now, actually, once I started realizing that pain is also made of thought, now that, that might be a bit harder one to swallow, but pain itself has no substance. We only experience pain when it comes into consciousness. And if your listeners are interested in some science on that, there's a, a great um, science uh, pain researcher called Lorimer Mosley. He's Australian. He's got lots of uh, free stuff on YouTube. And he explains, that's where I got that from. He said, we only experience pain when it comes into consciousness. That goes back to, to my, what I'm thinking about, because we all have like thoughts that we're aware of. And then there's this kind of thinky thoughts that are in the background, like, you know, do the laundry and, you know, don't forget to some, get something out the freezer and, you know, buy milk when you go to the store, you know, all those kind of busy, like busy thoughts that we don't pay that much attention to are going on in the background. And then sometimes we get kind of sticky thoughts that will like grab our attention and pain is one of those sticky things. So in the past, when I used to catastrophize, like you, you said, catastrophizing actually is sending a message to my brain that I'm in danger, which will then send more adrenaline and more cortisol and more glucose, which then will start me reacting. And they go, well, look, it must be real. Special effects. My hands are shaking. <laughs> right? So I don't do that anymore. Now, for your listeners, I would urge anybody who's having something, a, a new kind of pain or something that's not right, go to the doctor. I'm not saying for sure you need to get things checked out if it's something you don't know what it is and it could be, um, could be a serious problem. But once you've been checked out or you know clearly that it's not actually a physical thing, then when those thoughts come, and, and they do for when people are kind of recovering from something like this, they are going to get um, those random thoughts every now and again because the, the brain is kind of... Uh, um, uh, it might have got into a habit of, of like thinking about pain. But when those thoughts come now, I don't even ignore them because ignoring actually takes effort. Like I'm looking at you and I can see a, a painting behind you. Now, if I want to ignore that painting, it's actually going to take me effort to ignore the painting, right? So what I've realized that um, what I really want to do 
is see that it's unreliable, that it's just made of thought and a, a pain thought. And when all that story starts about the, you know, what could go wrong and what does it really mean? And was it because I was you know, angry with my boss yesterday and it's my husband's fault and all kinds of things like that is just to see that as just chitter chatter on, on, on the airwaves and I can just watch it go by. And I don't actually have to do anything because the nature of thought is to move. Thought moves all the time. And so any kind of analyzing, journaling, any, anything that where I'm going to start getting in there, maybe digging into the past and trying to see, maybe this is something from, you know, when I was a kid and my, my teacher humiliated me in front of the class. And that's why I always get this kind of pain when someone frightens me. There's a whole bunch of busy thinking that just sent messages to my brain that I'm in danger. Whereas if I don't have um, anything on it, I'm not judging those thoughts. They just move by and my nervous system doesn't have to react. And I've seen for myself and for the clients and people that I work with, that once they get the, this understanding and they learn not to be frightened by it, they actually, it actually comes less often. And when it does come, it's not much, it's not so strong. And eventually it just fades away and just becomes, you know, just another thought. And especially I've worked with a lot of people with things like fibromyalgia and, and chronic fatigue syndrome and things like that, where it's like they've been stuck in a hurricane for so long that their nervous system is on like high alert all the time. And so this, the slightest thing for them can be uh, alarming. And then as they start to understand this, it's like the volume on their, um, on their amplifier gets turned down. And then they get to be more relaxed and more, and their natural innate resilience comes through and they're able to, to ride the wave. And I like, not... I, I like this idea of pain being made of thought. I can understand it's, it's a difficult one sometimes to get across to people because, you know, they, people mm. may, may be right. You were doing, they, they, they have their thing that's wrong with them and it's an important thing to them and they want it to be listened to. But I guess what you're saying is not that it's made of thought as, as in it comes from nowhere, but the, the manifestation of it, the, the way you feel it is, is yeah. it's in your thoughts and not that you can control your thoughts in that you can make yourself not <clears throat> have thoughts, but you can, you can, you can decide what you're going to do with those thoughts. You're going to decide what you, you can decide what importance you, you attach to those thoughts, can't you? I really like the yeah. sound. You, you have a, you have a program. It's called, it's called painless pain relief through a new understanding of the mind. Is that right? And um, I, I, I like this idea because there are so many ways of relieving pain. A lot of them terrible. You know, a lot of the ones that come from, come from the doctor. Sadly, you know, I've talked about this a lot. You know, the, the opioid crisis and so forth doesn't seem to be getting any better, but we like this idea of I've got this physical thing wrong with me. You as a medical profession, do something, make it go away and everything's good. But I think most of us know there's more, there's a lot more, there's a lot more to it than that. And yeah. what you're saying is that we have, we have this ability to just listen to our pain in a different way. Yeah, no, I, lo I love how you just said that because um, yeah, sometimes there are, you know, there are, I want to say to everybody, the pain is real. I'm not saying that they're making it up. The pain is real. I used to feel like my pelvis 
been hit by a baseball bat sometimes. It was so excruciating. It would, I actually passed out at work one time. I used to work in Hollywood um, and uh, I was working on a movie with John Travolta. <laughs> oh, I there she goes. Out. Turns left into that. Nice. Yeah, I was, was going to mention because yeah, yeah. you said you said you were working on a movie. See, so I can get it into any conversation. <laughs> I am an, I'm an arch manipulator. <laughs> no, good for you. Sorry for interrupting. Carry on about John Travolta. Go on, please. <laughs> I passed out at work. They had to take me off to the emergency room. Now, people often ask me, like, that's such a weird thing to go from Hollywood into working with chronic pain. Like, so just to let people know, I used to do special effects. That was my job in Hollywood. I, I did special effects. I did um, animatronics, to be precise, where we'd make... Um, I was known for making copies of real animals. So if a, if a story had an animal in it that needed to talk or can't be killed or something that you know animals are not allowed to do or can't do then we'd make a copy of exactly that animal and then it would cut from my puppet to the real thing and you won't know the difference. So the way I, I see that now, that, that my brain has better, better special effects than me or Steven Spielberg could ever come up with. Because like I was saying, if I, I, get, um, if I catastrophize something, then my hands are going to start shaking. My heart starts beating faster. And you go like, well, look, it must be real. Look, my, like, my hands are sweating. You know, I've, I've just come out like you know, I, I can feel it. But that feeling has just been generated by the special effects of my nervous system, not the actual. That's why I was saying at the beginning, it, um, pain is not a reliable indicator of tissue damage because it's often my reaction to it that is what I'm actually experiencing. And um, actually on that movie, I remember um, working and we were filming out in the middle of nowhere and uh, in Texas and there's no film studios in Texas. So the carpenters had to um, build the film sets in a barn. And one, one day we were filming and a, an ambulance shows up because one of the carpenters had walked up a ladder and he didn't know, but there was a nail sticking down. Oh. And he, he walked up and got a nail stuck in his head. Oh. And he's like, he said to one of his friends, dude, I can't move my head. What's wrong? And they go, <gasps> you know, so they had to saw this piece of wood. And, ha and he was taken off to the hospital with a piece of wood nail to his head. Now, there's a famous piece of research of a, um, a British construction guy. And I always wonder if this guy knows how famous he is now, because it was written up in the British Med Medical Journal. And it's often written about in, in all kinds of pain books, where he jumped off some scaffolding onto a nail. And it went through his boot. And he's, he's screaming in pain. They rush him off to the emergency room and, uh, you know, they're, they're giving him morphine and they're like x-raying his foot. And then they notice that the nail had gone between his toes. There was no tissue damage at all. And yet he's screaming in real pain because he can only see the nail coming up through his boot. I'm guessing it was a pretty tough, strong boot, right? So think about these two stories. One guy's got no tissue damage and he's screaming in pain. The other guy's got real tissue damage. I mean, I know there's no um, nerves in your brain because that's how they can do, you know, um, brain surgery when you're awake. But I'm sure there are, I know there are nerves in your skull, yeah. right? So, and he had no pain. And I'm pretty sure he recovered because we would have heard if he like, you know, God forbid something terrible had happened to him. So that's why I'm saying pain is not a reliable indicator. Now, something else I just want to point out for the, for the viewers who can't see, I can see Richard and he was pulling all kinds of faces when I was describing that. I was. Right? Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Now, 
Richard, as far as I can tell, has no nails sticking in him or near him. And yet he was having an experience which was completely created by his thoughts, right? So anybody who was listening, if you were going, ew, 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 stop, right? Then just know that that was being created by, by the creative power of thought, right? That's how it works. That's how our minds work. We are always experiencing our thinking. We live in a thought-created world. And whether it's special effects like in a movie where, you know, just, I'm sorry to tell you, but Daniel Radcliffe cannot fly. Uh, oh. Harry Potter can, right? <laughs> Harry Potter can fly, Daniel Radcliffe can't, you know? So we do all kinds of special effects to make it look. And, and for those, that two hours, when you're watching that movie, you are transported into this world where, of make-believe where you think it's true. You suspend your disbelief. And we do that with pain, with trauma, with relationships, money, you name it. We do that all the time with our minds. And before I understood this, I was a victim of that because I was sure that the way I felt was a result of the boyfriend, the, the person who didn't call me back, the fact they don't pay me enough, the, you know, the weather, the government, you name it. It was all their fault why I felt like I did, including the physical stuff. But now that I see that I'm only ever experiencing my thoughts about those things, it's kind of left that, that world off the hook. Those people and situations don't have to change for me to be okay anymore. All that has to change is my thinking and go upstream a little bit further. And I see that I don't even have to change my thinking because those thoughts have already moved and passed on like clouds. The clouds do not need my permission to move. They don't need my encouragement. It's their natural, their, their nature is to flow and move. And so all I have to do is sit back and see that my thought is always moving. It's always fluid. And there's always going to be a fresh new thought. And when I calm down, that's where intuition, inspiration, creativity, all those amazing things are able to come through. And I get to see, you know what? Maybe I should put some ice on it, or maybe it's nothing, or then my wisdom directs me of what I'm actually supposed to do. The cinema is a very good example. We know that our, our minds can have this huge effect on our bodies, because you know you can, sit, you can sit, you can watch a film, and you can feel physical excitement and fear, whatever it may be, mm -hmm. from the film. But then when it comes to more personal things, like, like feeling pain, we want to think that's real and we don't want to think that we're we're creating things for us but it makes but it makes perfect sense that if you can do if you can do it in one entertainment scenario you can do it in your in your day-to-day -day life and have some some control over what things what things yeah. do to you you know what i'm thinking yeah. now i'm wondering how much the man with the boot got the piss taken out of him when he went back to the building <laughs> imagine never, i know I wonder if I can find out who he is because uh, I, I, I want to give him a hug. We should, <laughs> we, should, we should still be taking the piss out of him now. <laughs> no, but, but how, how many, time, how many times have you, you know, like, like just then when, when you were pulling faces when I was describing it, you know, it's like how many times a day do I innocently fall from my own thinking? You know, like I remember sitting on the tube, you know, when I lived in London and I worked in the theater, I remember sitting on the tube. I was in a really, really dark, horrible place, you know, after all these muggings. And I knew everybody on the tube hated me. Like <laughs> that's made up. right? And or things like I remember when I was a little girl, I I was convinced that every lady in England gets a chance at being the queen. I don't know where I got wow. that from. When I was about five years old, I realized, because I remember thinking, when is it going to be my mom's turn to go to be the queen? Because that means we'll get to go too. 
And I suddenly found out or realized, or when maybe one of my brothers put me straight and that's not going to happen. I was like, oh, you know, so I was living in a world where one day we were going to go to the palace for the day. And then the next day I realized we weren't, you know, <laughs> so we, we call this insight. So what I'm describing, it's not an intellectual understanding. The, the smart people listening will zoom right past this and go, oh, that's like mindfulness or that's like, you know, ignoring your thinking or, you know, I'll just journal it away or, you know, and, and what I'm saying is it's so much simpler than that. It's actually, and it actually comes from insight because I can see whilst you've been listening to me and the things you've said, you've actually had an insight whilst you were listening. And an insight is a sight from within. And that lasts a lot longer than some kind of intellectual thing that you can study, do the homework, get, get a certificate and move on to the next technique. This is not a technique. This is a description of how all psychological functioning happens. And it's actually how all those other techniques work. Because like my friend will say, well, I love my acupuncture or I love my therapy. And I'd say that's because they're calming your thinking down. Problem is, because you don't understand that, you need to keep going back to the acupuncture and back to the journaling and back to the therapy because that calm that they that you felt from that has run out and you're attributing it to the practitioner or the technique. So that's why you have to keep going back. That's why I kept going back to the chiropractor because I thought it was their skill or their technique that was making me feel better. But now I'm pretty certain that had I just lay on the floor with a hot water bottle, I would have gotten better anyway. Well, yeah, and lying there calmly with someone caring for you as well is probably as much of it, you know. Yeah, it's placebo. Something, it's, and, something and, good is being done for me now. I'm yeah, being helped. it's calming. It's, it's a placebo effect. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I just think of all the money I spent when, when now that I understand it, I have not been to any kind of medical help for six years and, and, and I've been doing fine. And by the way, I said, if, if people do need, a, this isn't an anti-doctor message. If you need a doctor for sure, then you should go. But I now know that, um, in fact, my, the last time I saw my family doctor, she said to me, she said, everybody that comes through the door is either maternity or a stress-related illness. She described it as the epidemic of the age. Stress-related Right, because 100 years ago, we were dealing with germs. We were dealing with cholera and typhus and, and you know, malaria. And, and that's what, you know, was killing, you know, most of the world's population off. Now, it's stress. I mean, I'm saying, well, this obviously, um, you know, this, she said this to me before the whole corona thing started. But even the amount of people I work with who are stressed about getting sick or stressed about staying home, stressed about losing their job that is causing them physical problems. And so that what, that's what she meant is like stress-related illness is, is really what we are, you know, primarily dealing with as, as people today. Well, and, I think that, sorry, I think, that, I think even with your, you gave a caveat about uh, coronavirus, stress could end up being the, the, the worst effect of it because, you know, mm -hmm. far, far more than the amount of people affected by the actual disease could be the amount of people that get stress from losing their jobs, from being stuck at home right. with people that aren't kind to them, all these, all these yeah. potential unforeseen circumstances. So, so yeah, you said even, even before Corona, but I don't think it's gone away at all. No, it's probably worse. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it's worse. Mm -hmm. I'm sure it's worse. Well, I mean, it sounds, it sounds, it's, I'm glad you mentioned the films because it sounds like despite all of this, you've, you've made a career out of helping other people, but you've also made success in other areas of your life. So as an example of what you're doing, you're an excellent one. Thank you. <laughs>
So, yeah, I, I actually spoke at the university here a couple of years ago at a conference about fear. And I sat there and told them the, my story in quite graphic detail. And these professors who teach psychiatry and psychology, they could not believe that I could talk about these terrible things that happened to me and be okay now. And I'm saying to them, because I'm not broken, I don't need fixing. There's nothing wrong with me. All that I needed to do was understand what happened. And I've gone and had an amazing life. And thank God it's, it's continuing now. But do you get any emotional response when you, when you talk about things? I mean, because obviously I'm asking you about, I asked you about them today. Is there any kind of emotional response still? Or? Um, not, with the, not with the muggings at all, nothing. Other than the sound of footsteps behind me for, for years, I'd say for 10 years afterwards would like really set me off. Like I'd be, <gasps> even though it could be a sunny day, I'm on the beach with friends, you know, and, and I, it could be someone jogging past me. The sound of footsteps would, would like kind of set me off. I'd have like a, a, a jolt reaction. Today, I'm, I'm still aware of it, but I realize now it's not a fear thing. I'm not frightened of it. In fact, I can walk through my neighborhood at night on my own. It doesn't bother me. And it hasn't for years. But like I could be jogging in the park. Well, I don't, actually, I don't jog. I walk. Um, <laughs> but say someone's jogging past me, I will think about it. But it's just part of me now, like being like I, I live in Israel. So if I hear someone with an English accent, I'll, I'll look around because I want to see, is it somebody I know? It was like, maybe they're from Bristol. Maybe they're from like, so, went to Manchester University. Uh, it's a connection. It's just part of my makeup. It's just part of my experience. So um, does it upset me now? In fact, I, I now see how much how much it's kind of like been a, a big part. It's a huge part of my life. If anybody listening has, has gone through something like this, help them know that, um, that they can get better, that they're not broken. There's nothing actually wrong with them. They just need some understanding. And it's an innocent, innocent misunderstanding when we get caught up in our thinking. So if anybody's in, in that place right now, and they may be even, like you said earlier, like in a situation where it's ongoing, Mm-hmm. you know that that is difficult and so but just know that it's an innocent innocent misunderstanding when i think that, that that's who i am it's never who you are it's what's happened or happening to you and it's not wanting to make these things never happen but it's just not bringing them with you into the present i guess isn't yeah. it and, and not letting yeah. them affect you in the present mm-hmm. yeah. hannah it's been amazing to talk to you if people want to find out more they can go to your website which is c-h-a-n-a so hannah but spelled chana studley s-t-u-d-l-e-y dot com correct anywhere else they should look out for your work oh you've got you've got one novel out and one coming out is that right you're just finishing one yeah um i have a novel out on amazon called the myth of low self-esteem which is really kind of my story that I've told today. It's about, I'd say 80% of it is true. It like covers the trauma and then the Hollywood story and then, then the kind of getting well. And then I'm just finishing editing today, actually. My editor just wrote to me, like, we're, we're done with the editing of a, a book. It's called Painless, which is the same name as my program. And it's kind of a continuation where um, the main character goes on and starts learning all this um, the stuff that I've been talking about today with pain and, and having a new adventure with that, with a nice romantic ending. So people aren't all weird like me that like to read research. I I like reading research because <laughs> when I read it. the research, I Someone see the stories. Yeah, right. <laughs> Right. But I see the stories. I see the, the construction guy. I, I'm like, I'm wondering who he is or who actually shows up for pain research. They've got to be some kind of weirdo to do that. Right. <laughs> so there's this like, so I see the stories and I turn that research into stories and hopefully people find that more interesting than just the dry stuff. So, um, so the, the painless should be out by the end of the year. And I also have a Facebook group. Um, so there's a lot of information in the Facebook group and that's called TMS chronic pain 
and the three principles. TMS, chronic pain and the three principles. That's yeah. I'm, I'm ordering your PTSD book on Amazon now and I'll look out for the new one. Great. Hannah Studley, <laughs> thank you so much for talking to me. My pleasure. Thank Been you a pleasure. Very much. Thank you. Thank you very much again to Hannah Studley. Her website is hannahstudley.com. That's C H A N A Studley.com. Her novel, The Myth of Low Self-Esteem, is available on Amazon. Thank you very much for listening.